Good morning. C.S. Lewis said, uh, I believe that the sun has risen, not simply because I see the sun, but because of all that the sun exposes. As you start thinking about that, you go, wow, that's an interesting thought. Like you and I don't have the uh, capacity in our eyes just to stare at the sun all day. Matter of fact, it would burn up your retinas. But one thing that we can appreciate about the sun's existence is all that it illuminates. And today we're going to dive in uh, to this last week in the series called At the Ready, staying ready to have to keep from getting ready as we seek to find answers to difficult questions. And uh, over the last several weeks, we've answered questions like, can we believe that the Bible is reliable? And what do we do about a loving God in the midst of all the suffering in the world? And what do we do about a loving God sending someone to a place called hell? And we looked at all those different things that today we want to approach it a little bit differently in the sense that I'm not going to just throw a ton of scriptures at you today. What I am going to do is kind of give you, I hope, some evidence to have a difficult conversation. Matter of fact, the point of this message series is that we would be prepared to give an answer to the hope that we have in Jesus. And so uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that's what Paul uh, is encouraging, or Peter is encouraging rather the church to be about. And so we're supposed to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ, but we're also supposed to do it with gentleness and respect. And I think oftentimes, uh, at least in my perspective of Christianity, oftentimes we come uh, at hard conversations with oftentimes a very dogmatic and defensive approach. Oftentimes when we don't agree with someone, uh, it causes us to either get defensive, and usually I don't think it's just because they've made us mad, but I think oftentimes we get defensive because it's a mechanism that we have when we don't have all the information to have an intellectual conversation. I feel like that's true of the church. I think that my generation, a group of millennials that many of you baby boomers in here would say are a bunch of knuckleheads, uh, oftentimes have been asking the question, but why? Like, but why do we believe this? And I think for so long, people within the church have been getting answers for generations. It's because you should have faith. It's just the way it is. We just should believe that. And that's really not adequate when it comes to the world we live in. We ought to be able to have intellectual, meaningful conversations. Why? because it's been happening for ages. Matter of fact, even Paul. Paul would go into a, a place in, in the city of Athens, and he was going to come across a group of men who were gathering together. And as he entered into Athens, that part of Greece, where there was tons of mythology going on, and they were worshiping people like Zeus, half mortal, half immortal. He would come into a city in which they had basically sculptures set up to all of these unknown gods and, uh, and to all these gods that they worship. And then they had one that said to the, to the unknown gods. And in Acts chapter 17, you're going to see some dialogue that takes place. And he's going to enter in. And in verse 24 of Acts 17, he's speaking um, to the people in this place called Athens, this, this place in Greece with the city of understanding and knowledge in the world at the time. And he said, the God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul's writing, and you see this part in the early church as they enter in there and have this dialogue, this conversation, um, as Luke transposes it for us the way we can understand. And, and what's happening there? He goes, look, we, we don't see God and understand him completely, but we need to realize that though we can't see him and we don't understand him, he doesn't live in a temple built by human hands. You can't confine him to mortal bricks and to buildings. And then he goes on and he says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind 
to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Look, look what he said. They're having this dialogue there. He goes, there is a God who has made himself known to us. And yes, there are a lot of different things that we should be looking for in terms of clues for God. But God did that so that we could see and feel our way towards him. And that's really the point of today. I hope that we're able to have some evidence that ultimately concludes in, in some good judgment and some clues for God in a way that we can have meaningful conversation. You're going to see the conversation continues on, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, is what you would see in the narrative. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of you and your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You're going to see Paul write it to the church in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, in a, in a way that we saw discussed last week by Cody. And he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So what, what you see here is the scriptures say is that there is a God. Yes, you can't see him. You can't feel him. You, you can't necessarily sense or, or, or smell him. Like All the senses don't necessarily point to the God. So you go, does that mean that he's not there? And you go, well, not necessarily. And that's really the point of today is I want you to realize is that there are clues for God that you have to determine whether or not they're meaningful or not. And you don't just determine them by scriptures. Obviously, I could go through the scripture and I could give you scripture after scripture after scripture about why God exists, about the world the way it is the way it is. But if you're talking to someone who would say that they're atheistic by nature, not a pantheistic, not talking about this group of guides who uh, has multiple different, a pantheon of gods, every different day has a different God. We're talking about somebody, not somebody that's just monotheistic. We're not talking about the Muslim. We're not talking about, we're talking about a pantheon of gods or different things. You go, well, how do you have a, a conversation with them? But even more than that, what about the one who says there is no God, the atheist or the agnostic who goes, I'm not sure if God exists. Do you think that the scriptures are going to be enough in the conversation? And the answer is probably not. Now, I do think that you should have both. I think you should know the, the scriptures, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. Obviously, I believe that the power of God's word can transform any life. It's a double-edged sword. It divides the joints and the marrow. I believe that, but also think that we need to have a conversation about what Paul was saying, is that you ought to be able to look around the world and see some clues for God's existence. And so that's the point of today. And I want to give you really four things that I think you and I should begin to kind of look at. And in order to do that, I think we need to realize what it is we're talking about. We're talking about Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection. Now, I want to realize that natural selection is something that ultimately concluded and derived from one point of, of matter. And so they would believe hypothetically, that there was a Big Bang explosion. From that Big Bang explosion, there was a single-cell organism that ultimately, over the span of time, millions and millions of years, have developed and mutated and transformed into different evolutionary species. And over those species, even those species, on a micro level, y'all remember science? The micro level, you had a microscope to see it, are evolving and where you and I can see it through the lens of our eyes on a macro level. And so you can't see micro stuff because it's developing and so it's almost like a green beetle, okay? A green beetle will occasionally be a green beetle, but sometimes it may mutate over a course of time into a brown beetle. Well, brown beetles are more camouflaged than green beetles, and so green beetles get eaten more. 
So then you've got mutation that's happening not only on that level, but also then it begins to ha happen on the level of what? Just, just the development of nature and, and then also uh, coming together. And so you have, what, more brown beetles. And so you, you see all that and you go, okay, that makes some sense. But here's the deal. With, with natural selection, you also have to derive the conclusion, do you mean that everything you now see and know, what you know as matter, what you know as atoms collecting together, protons, neurons, all those things coming together, you mean that all of it developed ultimately from one explosion, one single cell organism, and now we see the world that we have? And the answer is yes. That's, what, that's really the premise of Darwinian thought, okay? And so if you have that thought, the question is, is did that all happen by chance? And that's really what my point is today, is did it? We're going to have to talk through it, but here's four, four things you should consider. Number one is just humanity. Like, you got to think through the lens of humanity. And what I mean by that is this. I definitely agree that we have determined more about genetics now than we ever have in our lives. Matter of fact, you see dog breeding. You see um, different things happening with even in the cow, injury, uh, cow industry, uh, obviously taking certain genetics. And, and then not only that, even when you're having a child, you see people that they could potentially leave out something to make sure that they ensure better genetics. And so I realize that on a micro level, there is some adapting that takes place. But the question that you have to ask yourself is if natural selection ultimately produces a, strongle, a strongest man or a survival of the fittest mentality, the question is, is, why is it that you and I are so bothered about dignity within humanity? For instance, if I was to talk to someone in uh, the realm of dogs, and they go, dogs should not be harmed. Whether they're an advocate for PETA, etc. They go, dogs ultimately should have life and they should have respect. Matter of fact, some would say that dogs are worth more than human lives if you're having the right conversation. But the bottom line is this, you go, well, dogs have value. But if you're asking a woman who is battered by her husband, do you have value? She would believe that she had value. Matter of fact, if you were talking to another woman about a battered woman, you would be adamant that a woman should not be hit by her husband. Why? Because she has value and worth. That's the same conversation that's taking place right now in our nation, that regardless of what uh, social status you are, regardless of what color you are, you and I have dignity, we have worth, we have value. And the question is, where does that thought come from? If you and I believe that all lives have value and dignity, then where do you get that thought? Because I would argue and conclude that it can't come from the form of natural selection. For instance, if natural selection is a group of people mutating, developing on a micro level, ultimately to be seen on a macro level where you and I could live, wouldn't it be wise for us to adapt in ways that we survive? And the answer is yes. That's why the brown beetle ultimately survives more than the green beetle. But wouldn't it be great for us on a human level to adapt over time and that the strongest, most intellectual, most savvy ultimately would win and you would be at the top of the pyramid? So if you're at the top of the pyramid, why do you care about what happens to the person on the bottom of the pyramid? Because ultimately, if you care about what happens to the person on the bottom of the pyramid, then you go, that doesn't make any sense. Now, I want you to realize that an evolutionist would say, well, the reason that you're adapting over the time is because people not who are mean, but those who are caring and comforting and nice are the ones who ultimately adapt over time, and they thrive longer. But then my question is this, if they're thriving for a long period of time because they're kind and they're nice, 
then what happens when you get a majority of the world who says we're going to usurp their authority and we believe that we should be mean and we want to be on top and you have a survival of the fittest? Well, it trumps everything that you believe in natural selection. And so that's one thing you have to think about in terms of natural selection. If it is survival of the fittest, if it is the strongest man wins, then why do we care who gets hurt along the way? So it's just something to think about. It's a conversation to have because the strongest man cannot win and you believe that all humans receive good. You can't have both. And so you gotta have one or the other. And the question then becomes, where does good come from? And every time you have good and you have a better understanding of evil, I think personally that your good points toward the God. But it's just something you gotta talk to. The second thing is, is this, talk about evolving now. So if you're of Darwinian thought and you're thinking about humanity, not just in natural selection, but of the evolving now, and we've talked about how things evolve, the question is this, we ultimately evolved to a point where we were monkeys, okay? And so if we were monkeys, then you go, well, that might have been millions or even potentially billions of years ago. When I was in high school, that was about 20 years ago, the earth was about 8 billion years old. Crazy enough, in the last 20 years, the, the earth has doubled. Now it's almost 15 billion years old. I don't know how that happened, but in 20 years, it, it's doubled, okay? So, but it's just something to think through. And so as that's happened, the question is, is in this billions of years and tons of microevolution happening on a macro lens in which you and I can see and understand, we supposedly came from monkeys. And if we came from monkeys, I think there's two things you have to think about. Number one is, if you have monkeys and you have humans then one thing that you have to ask is, why don't you have any species in between? You have no fossil record indicating anything in between. You've got the beginning point, apparently, and you've got the ending point. But over millions and millions of years and all the fossil records, we have nothing to show the middle. So it's an interesting thing to think about. The second thing is this, is that in natural selection and in the mutation process, you have the developing of different things. The other question you have to ask yourself is, is as they do produce on a macro level that you and I can see, you say they could still breed together. And so obviously, even though two beetles, you have a brown one and a, and a red one or a brown one and a green one could breed together regardless, that mutation ultimately develops into another cycle. The question is, is could we produce if we came from monkeys if we were bred to a monkey? Because you should be able to. And you go, that's sick. And it is, but I want you to realize that if you came from a monkey, you ought to be bred to a monkey because you just have adapted and evolved over time, but that's not possible. And so I think there's two things that if you look at humanity, think about natural selection, but also talk about how it is we got here, the evolving process. Got me? And so somebody would bring up, well, what about the law of thermodynamics? Now you go, I don't even have a clue what that is. Well, let me explain it to you real quickly. The law of thermodynamics is simply this, is that matter is never created or destroyed. And that secondly, the part of the law is that it's always spiraling downward. Okay, so for instance, let me explain it to you in a way you can understand. When you're born, you get old. When you get old, you get dry skin. When you get old, you what? Forget things. When you get old, you're like, oh man, you feel like I'm falling apart, right? You're like, no amens. Okay, well, let's talk about an old house, okay? <laughs> So you paint a house, you get a house and it's nice and paint. Well, after 30 years, if you haven't maintained it, what happens? It's spiraled downward. The paint begins to crack. It's falling off. It either has to be what? Repainted or it's just going to continue to what? Deteriorate. That's life. But that's not the process of natural selection. 
natural selection is the one thing that doesn't seem to be winding down on earth, but it seems to be winding up, and that makes no sense. And so there's three things just to think about in terms of humanity. Let me give you one fourth one just to think about this, because oftentimes we, we feel things in our life. So think about music. Think about art. Some of you really appreciate art. If you were to go to the Natural Museum of Art and History, you would see some sculpture from the Grecian days, and you'd be like, oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. And I would just see some naked dude. I'm like, whatever, let's move on. But somebody in here would appreciate that. Same, if we're listening to, to a masterpiece that Beethoven writes, like some of you, like you were just inspired by that. You go, there is something meaningful here. And I go, oh man, come on. But depending on who we are, we have a heightened sense of an awareness around us, okay? Like we feel something. There's some, some of us in here, like you're teenagers, you're 16, and you're in love right now. Like you're in love, and you feel that. And your parents are like, come on, that's not love, you know? But you're like, no, I feel it. It's love to me. And so you go, well, is it love? Because here's the deal. Who's able to tell you what love is or is not? Who's, who's able to tell you what good art is or good, good music is? Because you go, no, I perceive it to be that way. But what's interesting is about natural selection is, is it simply that. It's just a perception. It is a congulation of atoms that has gotten in your mind, and day in and day out, they come together, they give you some neurological response to something that you think is meaningful, although you have no idea that it's really meaningful. And the question is, you go, how does it happen? Because day in and day out, I appreciate art. Or day in and day out, I appreciate music. Or day in and day out, I feel like I'm in love. And what natural selection would say is simply this. No, you're really not. It's a figment of your imagination, and it's a bunch of atoms coming together in an explosion day in and day out. You go, that doesn't make any sense to me. And so the question is this. If you look at humanity, where does the dignity of man come from? What about the law of thermodynamics? How are we spiraling downward in so many ways, but of course evolution spiraling upward? How do you get this heightened sense of awareness of good in the world? Where does all that come from? What about art and appreciation of the things we feel? Natural selection doesn't have anything to say about those in a way that you and I can understand or I think accept, although many would say that it is what it is. And the second thing is not just about humanity, but what about just the finiteness of the universe? Now, I want to realize when you're thinking about the universe, you're not thinking finite, okay? You almost think infinite. You, you remember the great uh, story, the very first one of the Toy Story? You got Buzz Lightyear, and he says what, two? Okay, let's try that again. I was hoping for something a little more powerful there, right? To what? Yeah, to infinity and beyond. I mean, that's the awesome thing. You're like, man, it just keeps going and going and going, galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy. The universe is too big for us to understand. And what's interesting is, is that how did you get your universe? Darwinism would say that ultimately it was derived of one Big Bang explosion. Now, honestly, I have no problem with the Big Bang explosion, personally. And the reason why is because Genesis 1, we see that God said, let there be light, okay? And so I'm cool with that. The question is, how did it happen? And it really brings you back to what you would call a cosmological argument. Now, a cosmological argument is something this. It's, it's, it's a big word, but it's pretty easy to understand. Is that for every effect, you have a cause. So it's the idea of a cause and effect. For instance, if you have an awesome tree in your backyard, the question is, how did the tree get there? Well, of course, we go, it was a seed. Well, what about the tree before then? It was a seed. And so what you have over the course of time, for every tree you have, you had a what? Okay, y'all with me? Don't check out yet. Well, I got two more points to go. You got you for you have a tree, you have a seed, a tree, a seed, a tree, a seed. The question is, where's the ending point? Which brings about the good question that most of us have asked. Like, so what comes first, the chicken or the egg? 
Because there has to be a beginning point. Like, or did it all just come from nothingness? Like one single cell organism explodes. Now you have all this matter. And over time, it's just developed and it's mutated over millions and millions, really billions of years. On a micro level in which now we see it on a macro level, and you go, come on. But even then, how far back do you go? If every effect has a cause, and there's a cause and effect for everything you now see and know, even you. I mean, get this. Like, you are an effect of a cause. Understand? Your grandchildren are effective of a cause. You got me? You have that. So the question is, where's the starting point? And that's the point of the cosmological argument. Did, by chance, all things you now see and know just happen by accident, or was there something outside of space and time that kicked it into motion? And that's a question you have to ask yourself. What kicked it into motion? Now, what's interesting about the process of natural selection and Darwinian thought Guys like Stephen Hawking, uh, other that are, are very big on Darwinistic thought, they would say that there's no idea of testing a hypothesis for something outside of the natural realm. For instance, they're not even going to consider a cause and an effect outside of time and space because there's no way to measure the hypothesis. You understand? So meaning if we don't have a form of matter, if we don't have a collection of atoms, we don't have neurons and protons that we can test, then we're not going to come up with a theory that there possibly would be a God. And so we're not even open to looking at it because there's no way to conclude in a natural realm, time, space, and matter, that it exists. But that's, my friends, why I think there's something called the domino effect, which is the cosmological argument. Meaning that if you believe in a big bang, an explosion, that means that all of a sudden, like maybe if we just do something, they'll fall over. Like that's what's going to happen. Like these dominoes would stay standing just like this until something ultimately just knocked them over. The question is, is if you believe in something different that has a, a cause and effect, that means that you know that there could potentially be something that kicked it all into motion. It was the trigger. For instance, let me put it another way you understand. What comes on first? The lights, or are you flipping the lights? In order for the lights to come on, you've got to flip a switch, don't you? They don't just come on, and it's the same here. In order for the dominoes to be knocked over, something has to start it. That's the cosmological argument. In order for you to have a cause, you had to have an effect. Understand? Which brings you to this point, and I think uh, one that Princeton biologist Professor Edwin Conklin says, he says, the probability of life originating from accident is comparable to the probability of an unabridged dictionary resulting in a printing factory. What he's saying is, if you take a big old huge dictionary and you threw it on the ground, all of a sudden you should have a printing factory. And you go, that's ludicrous. He's going, I think you have to conclude that a big bang making everything we see and know is as ludicrous. I love uh, what uh, scientist Francis Collins, he, he writes a book called The Language of God, which has got fantastic things in it. He says, we have a very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang, 15 billion years ago. The universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of energy from an infinitesimally small point that implies that before that, there was nothing. And he goes, I can't imagine how nature, in this case, the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it, and it seems to me that it had to be outside of nature. So a scientist goes, surely there was something that kicked it into motion. Got me? I would say that even other in Darwinian thought, guys like Stephen Hawking would say, 
that as we examine the universe and we look at the very tilt, we know something started it. We just don't know what or how, but we do know it was the Big Bang, and we do believe that we have all we see and know now because of it. We would say it was God. Now, I want you to realize that you got an infinitely small universe in grand scheme, but I want you to also see the complexity of it, okay? The complexity of the universe is huge, and I want you to realize why it's huge. For instance, it's called the teleological argument. The teleological argument is really kind of the idea of a watch and a watchmaker. And so let's just talk about it. Like, if you have a watch on, the question is, is did that watch just, did it form components of itself? And you go, no, of course not, okay? But essentially, that's the idea of natural selection, is that you would have a watch and no watchmaker. That every form, and now let's just take a, a, a watch that's far bigger and far more intricate. Let's, let's talk one that's in the center of London. And you have this huge this huge clock that's got all types of gears and shafts, and they're uniquely working together in time and in function, and they're heavy, and they're intricate. And the question is this, did they just jump together one day, and you just had time? And the answer is, you go, no, absolutely not. It doesn't make sense. Why? Because in the teleological argument, you almost say, if you're going to have a watch, you had to have a watchmaker. And if you have a planet, there had to have been an intelligent design, because if there wasn't an intelligent design, could we have a world? And the answer is, yeah, I think hypothetically you could. But the question is, is could you have a world that's as complex as the world we live in? For instance, let me just give you a few things. I think there's about 15 different things. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to name them all, but I think there's about 15 different things in terms of the speed of light, the constant of physics, gravitational pull, the strength and weak of nuclear forces, all these different values that are having to work together literally in the millionth and sometimes millionth millionth, okay? But just consider these. What, what about the unique properties of water? I mean, just how much our earth depends on water. Beyond that, not just water in the sense of where it is, but think about this. Water, if we were any closer to the sun, would boil, and we would boil along with it. Or if we were any further away from the sun, we would freeze instantly. Like, like right there's a pinpoint measurement. What about Earth's atmosphere? You got too many gases, then you've got a, a real challenge in our atmosphere with a runaway greenhouse effect. If you've got too little gases, you've got this cosmic radiation going on too. If you've got the magnetic field, if it's weaker, then you're dev devastated right away by cosmic radiation. If it's stronger, then you've got this severe electromagnetic circuit that's happening and we're all fried together. So you got that. You've got the solar system and the way that we are revolving. We talked about that in the sun. You've got the uh, solar system and this place in the galaxy. You've got the color of the sun. If it's a little bit more red or a little tinge more blue, then you and I don't have the, uh, the process of photosynthesis. And it means that we have no trees and we have no air. We would just literally die, asphyxiate on ourselves. You've got the regularity of nature, things that scientists can't understand or even prove. Like, for instance, how is it that if all things are evolving over the time, why is it that you have boiling that is constant? Like you, you have a temperature that you boil every time. At 32 degrees, it always freezes. Your temperature is constant all the time, 98.6, right? It's a little high when it goes high. You get concerned about that. Why? Because you've got all these regularities of nature, and you go, how is it that you have all of these identical conclusions day in and day out? How is it the sun rises and sets? Do you ever wonder that? Did all that just happen by chance? It's just happenstance? And it's a question that you have to ask yourself. I love Francis Collins, the language of God. He says this, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if you knew something were coming. 
there are 15 constants, the gravitational constants, very constants about the strong, weak nuclear force. They have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Not exist, see it. We would not have been able to coalesce. There would not have been any galaxy, stars, planets, or people. Like, that's an amazing thought. Now, to help you understand it, because I'm kind of a visual guy, is this. Uh, what is this right here? Participation on the back. Can y'all see that back there? See, when we get old, our eyes, what? They go down, right? They have a... So here's the deal. That's a deck of cards. Now, I have played hundreds of card games in my life. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And uh, I know there were several of you watching the ball game last night and playing poker. Uh, it, it's just the word on the streets. I don't know if that's... Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. Um, but think about it. Like you, maybe you played a card game golf or you've played spades or maybe you played Texas Hold'em or whatever. Like you've played hundreds and hundreds of games. The question is, is this, and I, I want audience participation here, okay? Have you ever in all of the games you've played with cards, can you ever recall a time where you were dealt four spades? Or I mean, not four spades, but four aces, four aces, Okay. So raise your hand if you've ever been dealt four aces in a hand that you can recall. Me either. That's crazy, right? So in, in the last service, we had about 220 people in here, and we had two people that could recall that. Now, what's interesting is this. Now, think about it on this level. You have a deck of cards, and let's just say that I was the dealer. And in the first hand, we got together, and we were playing a game, and I dealt myself four aces. Now, you would go, hmm, interesting. Now, the question is, is there, is there a possibility that I could deal that? Absolutely. Now, here's the deal, too, is the second game goes by, and again, I deal myself four aces. And you would go, huh, right? Like, it's starting to get interesting now. Like, you, like your blood pressure starting to go up because you're a pastor and you're a cheater, right? <laughs> so, like, third hand, a probability of me doing that again, I deal myself four aces, and I go, listen, it's just happenstance. It just happens by chance. Like, it can happen. And hypothetically, can it happen? Yes. It absolutely can. And my friends, that's the idea of the teleological argument. Could it happen? Absolutely it could. But will it happen? Mm, the chances. Now, let me ask you a question. The chance of everything you now see and know is a number that is so infinitely large that I can't explain it to you, but it would be similar to me dealing myself four aces hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in a row, and you going, I don't think you're a cheater. I think it just happens. Now, you couldn't even agree on that with three times. Like, three times, you're like throwing cards. You're like, I'm out of here, right? <laughs> agree? Yeah, you're like, forget that. And so, the deal is, is how crazy is it for us to take numbers thrown out by scientists and just go, it must be that way, and Bible and science conflicts. My friends, the Bible and science don't conflict. There has never been a scientific argument that refutes a biblical truth. And I think you just got to be able to look and go, what about the complexity and design of everything that you and I see and I know and understand? That's the idea. And then here's the last one. If I, I want to take you back to Romans. In Romans chapter 1, if you remember, Paul's writing to the church of Corinth, I mean, to the church in Rome. And he says, 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For he, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Right? So they were without excuse. Now, what, what he's basically saying to the Romans, he goes, look, we're without excuse. Even if we didn't have a Bible, even if nobody ever preached to you about a guy named Jesus, like you should be able to look around you and go, man, this isn't all by chance. But here's what's interesting. We think that about the world. Like we think, oh yeah, there, there must be a cosmological argument that proves this. Hey, there must be a teleological argument. Hey, there must be a law of thermodynamics. And we listen to all this and we go, yeah, surely, surely, surely. But here's the deal. I want you to realize that not everything that God has made is perceived as something far off because there's something that God has made that you and I should pay attention to that I think proves God's worth and value far more than maybe all the things we've discussed. And that's you. God's work around us involving the world today. Listen to you. We believe that we are all created with dignity and worth and value, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We, we have that in us. We, we may not even know that the Bible says that, but we have something innate that says, yes, that's right. Here's the question. I think maybe the most convincing argument about all this is even if you can't prove that the Bible's reliable, even if you can't prove that God is all-loving, even if you can't prove that God created all this, that everything has an effect and a cause, the one thing that people couldn't dispute is this, is that you used to be a businessman who had practices that are, were deceitful. That you used to be a woman that was materialistic and you didn't care about anybody about yourself. That you used to be a man that you were caught up in traps like sexual deviation and things that didn't honor and please God, didn't honor anybody, quite frankly. That you used to be a guy who struggled with alcoholism and drugs. That you used to be a woman that was caught up in pride and arrogance and selfishness. But now you would look at your friend and you would say, that's who I was, but now I'm changed. Like, I'm different. There's something different about me. And here's the deal. How do you dispute that? Because if we're all evolving downward, then how is it that you and I would sense good in our lives? And where did it come from? If we would claim that God changed our lives, it doesn't matter what's happening around the world, even if you can't prove it. The one thing people can't dispute is how you were once in darkness, as Peter said, and you were now called to the marvelous light of Jesus which I think is so huge and so crucial in terms of why God has created the church. He's created us to live fearful lives for him, pursuing him in holiness, to be pure, to be noble, to be respectful, to be gentle with people, even though we have disagreements. And I would say this, there are plenty of answers out there that would suggest that this did not happen by accident. But the biggest deal is this, what would it look like if you and I were the picture of the world to the world that was tangible that there is a God. Because if you had known me before Christ, man, you wouldn't let me be your pastor. If you had known who I am apart from God living in me, you would say, oh, no, this guy, he's deceitful and he's proud and he's arrogant. You better believe it. But God changed my life by his glorious grace. And I'm a free man. I'm alive in Christ. And yes, I still struggle with pride, people-pleasing, and perfectionism. God has redeemed me from a ton of stuff and he's brought me into the light. And so because of that, I am a tangible representation to the world about what God has done. Amen? And so the question is, is what are you pointing people towards? You may be able to argue all these scientific things, but you may be a poor example of the world. What God needs you more than anything is for you to be a great example to the world. And what I would say is this, is that you and I, the point of this series is to stay ready to have to keep from getting ready. We should be at the ready, and we should be ready to involve ourselves in some hard conversations. So here's the deal. 
If you say, I love God, that means you love people. And I'll tell you right now, all the turmoil going in our nation, all the things that are happening, even as we sit in this room and the NFL is in the middle of all the stuff that's going on, here's the thing that I think you should understand is that there are people involved and we should have dialogue even though we don't seem to understand everything. We should seek to understand we should seek to find ways to have conversations. And I'll tell you, it's struggle, isn't it? It's a struggle to have conversations with people who don't identify with you politically, who don't identify with you racially or socially, or for that matter, how you agree on a multitude of issues, because there's a ton of issues at stake. But the question is this, if we saw everything from the lens of that God created them and they have dignity and worth and value, and the goal is not for me to win, but for me to seek to understand them and to be the light of the world to them, The question is, what kind of conversations could we have? And I think we need to have more conversations. Conversations with atheists and agnostics about who God has created us to be. Conversations between congregations who think that they have the truth and they've got a lockdown on. We ought to seek to know who God is and we ought to show people his divine truth by the way he's changed our life. I think that's enough evidence for who he is. Unfortunately, I think, and maybe it's just a perception for me, which also seems to be my reality, right? I think that we're scared to death to have hard conversations with people we don't understand. And I think we oftentimes lose our cool because we don't have a solid stance that we can back anything up with other than that's just the way it is. And I think we need to seek to understand with facts and hard conversations. What a challenge. But I pray that you would be ready for them. And at a moment's notice, you'd be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ, regardless of color, regardless of social status, regardless of politics, regardless of anything. May they see more Jesus in you than anything else. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for today. And God, I pray that just as we could look to the sun and believe it exists, God, I pray people could look at us and see that you exist. I pray that because of all the light you've put into our life, that people could see the world differently. God, help us to be the light and the salt of the earth. God, help us to know that you exist, not because of what we see, not because of what we feel, not because of what we smell, not because of what we taste, or because of what we hear. Because quite frankly, Lord, if that's our view of you, Lord, we'll never see you. But God, we also know that there's a multitude of things that exist that we can't see or feel or smell or taste. Today, we're going to get in our cars, God, and we're, we're going to listen to the radio, and we don't see a single radio wave. And so, God, would you help us to look through a different lens at who you are and why you exist and why you desire for morality and good in an evil world? God, I pray that we wouldn't believe that all of this is just happenstance, that we would believe that there's an intelligent designer who chose to love us so much that you entered into time and space to become our great designer. God, we want to trust you, we want to love you, and we want to have conversations about you. And so God, would we be respectful and gentle, and would we be a great picture of the church to the world? In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen.